Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. As human beings created in the image of God, we were created to be in community with others. We were not created to live lives of isolation. We were not made for loneliness. But we were made for relationship. Relationship with God, our creator, and the relationship with our fellow human beings. And as that is true in general for all of creation, it's especially true for the church. The church is to be the place where the Christian experiences true communion and community. Communion with God and community with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's possible to have a church with a significant congregation, but with a struggling community. It's possible to be a small church and struggle with community. How can we build Christian community? This morning, Paul shares with us the attitudes necessary for building and preserving true biblical community in the local church. And as he does so, he shows us the way to have a healthy church. For a healthy church is a church with true biblical community. Paul, in the book of Colossians, has, particularly in chapters 2 and 3, has been teaching us about the importance of this new era that has come with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the Christian. And he's pointing out the importance of the distinction between our old self and our new self. From the time before we knew Christ to the time since we've known Christ. The distinction between our old life and our new life in Christ. Look back with me at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. Where Paul talks about this enormous change that's taken place that has come as a result of our being spiritually united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Colossians 2.12. You have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Through faith in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, we have been united with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And with that spiritual union with Christ has come a whole new set of values, a whole new way of living, a whole new set of attitudes that are to mark us out as the Christian community. 
We've been given a new heart. We are new creations. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And with this newness has come new heart attitudes which help to make a healthy church that help to build biblical community. And with that in mind, I want us to look at Colossians chapter 3. We're going to focus in on verses 12 through 14. But because it's been a couple of weeks since we were in Colossians together, I'm just going to start at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 and just remind you of where we've been, remind you of what Paul's been talking about, the new self as opposed to the old self, the new life as opposed to the old life, and these new virtues as opposed to the old ways of living. All right, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, to impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, And abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And you've put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And now verse 12. So... As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for giving us the light of your word, the light of your truth. We thank you that you never change and your truth never changes. We thank you that it is good for us to consider these things, to consider our ways before you. It is good for us to confess the ways we've fallen short the ways we've given over ourselves to anger and wrath and clamor and slander and lies. Forgive us, Lord. And help us, Lord, in a new way to cultivate these virtues in our heart that we might contribute to true biblical community here at our church. True biblical community that reflects who you are, your character, your attributes and your desires for us. Lord, we ask these things by your grace and according to your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Here in verse 12 of Colossians 3, Paul says, so. So what? So is sometimes translated as therefore. In light of what Paul has said in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, this is how he wants them to change. This is what he wants them to do. And once again, we see that Paul bases his call to action on their identity. We see Paul using the indicative, who they are in Christ, as the basis and motivation for the imperatives, the commands that he shares with them about their new way of living. Therefore, he says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. That's the indicative. That's who they are. That's their identity. As Christians, this is our new identity. This is our indicative. The indicative reality of our lives in Christ. We are chosen of God. We are holy and we are beloved. Christian, if you're here today, this is your story. This is who you are. This is your standing. This is your identity. Chosen of God, holy, and beloved. Paul is reminding us here of our gospel position. Chosen of God means that we are elect in Christ. We've been chosen unto salvation. We know from other passages like Ephesians 1 that this choosing, this divine election occurred in eternity past before you and I ever existed. And that we were chosen according to God's mercy and grace and not according to anything good in us, whether the good was foreseen or good planned or any of that. We were chosen according to God's mercy and grace alone. God's choice of us should always, therefore, lead us to thanksgiving and praise and to an attitude of profound humility and wonder that God would ever choose us. How can it be? And yes, yet it is. Thank you, Lord, for your choice. A right understanding of election should never lead us to pride or arrogance or looking down on others, but rather lead us to wonder, love, and praise at God's mercy and grace in our lives. Not only are we chosen of God, but we're also said to be holy and beloved. That we're holy means that our sins have been once and for all dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we've been declared holy in God's sight. We have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ according to God's mercy and grace. We've been declared righteous, declared holy in His sight. The perfect holiness of Jesus has been credited to our account and our sinful lives has been credited to Jesus' account and our sins have been paid in full and righteousness has been satisfied by Jesus' righteous life and his substitutionary sacrificial death. And now, when we respond to God's gracious offer of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and we respond with faith, we are declared righteous in God's sight. 
positionally. And now God is actively making us practically holy more and more as we yield our hearts and our bodies and our lives to him so that our practical life matches up with our positional standing before God. More and more. Not only are we chosen of God and holy, but we're also beloved. God loves us. Jesus loves you. And he loves us with an everlasting, unending, unwavering love. A perfect love. A love that can't be improved upon. Jesus couldn't possibly love you more than he does right now. You are beloved. The parallel passage in the sister book to the book of Colossians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. God's rich mercy and his great love has resulted in our new position, opening up new eras of new realities and new attitudes and new virtues. So as Christians, we're chosen of God, we're holy, and we're beloved. That is our identity. That is our standing. Paul said the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. He says, God chose us, same thing, in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Chosen of God, holy and beloved. All because of God's grace and mercy. So, Paul says, therefore, in light of the fact that you are indeed chosen of God, holy and beloved, now live your life out of this reality. Live life in keeping with the truth of who you are in Jesus. He urges them here to be who they are. Christian, be who you are. Live it out. Live your life out of the power of these new divine realities. And so, he then lists a, a series of virtues, of attitudes, of, of heart attitudes that they are to cultivate in their lives, that they're to put on. And there's seven of them here, seven heart attitudes we're going to see this morning, to cultivate so that we can grow into maturity and spiritual health as individuals and as a church family. Everybody wants to be part of a healthy church. Nobody wants to go into a church that's a train wreck of relationships. Nobody needs that drama. Nobody wants that drama. So everybody wants to be part of a healthy church. Every Christian should rightly want to be part of a healthy church. But what makes a healthy church? Healthy Christians. Right? It doesn't just happen. We are the church. And this is the biggest group project ever. 
We're all involved in it. And we all bring something to the table, whether helpful or unhelpful. But we're all part of it. And here Paul shares these seven heart attitudes which will help contribute to a healthy church, which will help, con- help contribute to healthy community that we all need, that we're all made for, that we all long for. So first of all, you want to be a healthy Christian that contributes to a healthy church, that provides healthy community? Cultivate a heart of compassion. Cultivate a heart of compassion. Paul says, first of all, we're to put on a heart of compassion. In light of the indicative realities of who we are now in Christ, holy, beloved, called of God, chosen of God, it is imperative then that we put on a heart of compassion. Now, the first thing I want you to notice about all these commands that come, there's one command But that command is sevenfold to put on is that they are all attitudes which contribute to healthy relationships. These are not attitudes or qualities that can be cultivated merely by ourselves, alone, isolated from others. It requires us to be involved in other people's lives, each and every one of them. You can't have compassion for yourself unless you have, throw a pity party, right? You, you can't forgive yourself. You forgive others, despite what many people say. Forgive others. So this has to be done in the lab of community. Each of these has to be cultivated together. You can't do it at home alone. You can't do it by watching a screen. You can't do it by logging into the service. You have to be here for these things to grow and to be a part of who we are as a healthy church and a healthy community. So there's a very strong corporate dimension to these attitudes where to cultivate. The next thing I want you to see here is that In verse 12, there are five positive attitudes that are to be put on. And that these five, you you said there were seven. Well, there's five in verse 12, okay? Don't let me confuse you, which I could easily do because I'm unclear sometimes. These five listed in verse 12 correspond to the five evils of verse 8. Look back at verse 8. But now you also put them all aside. Okay, take them off. Put them off to the side. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Get rid of that. Have done with it. Instead, put on these positive attitudes and activities. The negative attitudes of verse 8 have a corrosive effect upon the church. And they're to be put off and thrown aside like a dirty garment because they're part of the old self. They're part of the old way of living. They're part of the old order. But we are now chosen of God, holy and beloved. So let's live like it. Let's live out of that reality. Whenever I or one of the kids has been doing a really dirty job, 
Leanne is sure to say, before you come in the house, take off your clothes in the garage. Leave them there. And rightly so. Don't bring dirt in the house. Don't bring filth in the house. And that's what the Lord is telling us here in this passage. Take off the dirty clothes of your old life consisting of anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech and put on your new Christ clothes before coming into God's house. Now, this is not just for Sunday, obviously. It's for any time the, the body gathers in Total as a corporate body or in small groups or in fellowship throughout the week. And of course, these things are good for us every day of the week, every hour of every day. But they're particularly helpful for building community, building that body life of a healthy church. So put off the old clothes, the dirty clothes, and put on the clean clothes of Christ. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, first on this list is compassion. Put on a heart of compassion. It simply means caring for others. Caring about others. In the old King James Version, it says bowels of compassion. Because it was thought that the bowels were the seat of human emotion and caring and love doesn't really translate into our culture so much. So we have heart of compassion. The meaning is the same. Concern for others. Weeping with those who weep. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. It's an others-centered mindset that puts their hurts, their needs, their concerns over our own. It's the opposite of being cold and calloused and unfeeling and uncaring It's the opposite of being self-centered and self-absorbed. It's to be compassionate and caring for others, bearing their burdens, listening to their hurts and concerns, and genuinely caring about them. You want to be part of a healthy church? You want to be part of real community? That's the kind that God designed for us from all eternity. Put on a heart of compassion. Care about others. How are you doing with compassion for others? You say, well, I got a lot going in my own life. I really can't sit and listen to everybody else's problems. Put on a heart of compassion. Put on a heart of compassion. Secondly, cultivate a heart of kindness. Cultivate a heart of kindness. Kindness is one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. It's an overall disposition of doing good to others. Kindness. It's to be a blessing to others by our attitude and our actions toward them. Being a blessing. Now, it's not just being nice. Nice is good. We'll take nice, right? I'll take nice over rude any day of the week. Nice is good. To be nice is to be polite. We should teach our children to be nice and polite. I know what nice is. I was brought up in the Midwest. There's a thing called Midwest nice. And as a son of Indiana, I know Midwest nice. 
the magazine The Economist tried to define what is Midwest nice. And this is what they said. It is apologizing involuntarily when scooting past someone, both to warn of your presence and to express regret for any inconvenience your mere existence may have caused. I'm sorry, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me. Now, nice is good, but it's possible to be nice and polite to someone when outwardly, while inwardly you're hoping they get hit by a bus. <laughs> Kindness goes much deeper than polite and nice. Kindness is a work of the Spirit, is a fruit of the Spirit, is a fruit of having our lives yielded to the Spirit's control over us. Kindness actively seeks the good, the well-being, the blessing of another. Kindness asks in the moment, how can I serve this person right now? How can I be a blessing to them right now? What will I do or say that will be an encouragement to them in the moment? Cultivate a heart of kindness. Thirdly, cultivate a heart of humility. Humility. Well, we know humility is the opposite of pride. God hates pride. Pride is at the root of all of our sin and selfishness. Humility, on the other hand, is exactly what God loves and what he wants from us and wants to see in our lives. Isaiah 66, 2, the Lord says, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. The Lord loves a humble heart. He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. To be humble is to not think highly of yourself. It is to think more highly of others than we do of ourselves. Now our natural disposition is to do just the opposite, right? To think too highly of ourselves and too little of other people. To cut ourselves a lot of slack but to make others toe the line. Well, that's a work of the flesh. That's not a work of the Spirit. Philippians 2.3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, vain conceit, but with humility of mind, lowliness of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now that's a miracle, isn't it? Whenever that happens, this does not come easily for us. Our flesh wants to be put on a pedestal. We want to be recognized, to be applauded. We want to be given respect. We want to be given what we believe we deserve. And we believe we deserve crowns and tiaras. But if we're going to grow into maturity and be a healthy church... We got to put off pride and put on humility toward each other. How do you do that? How do you put on humility? How do you put off pride and put on humility? Well, simply look at your sin and look at the cross. If you're tempted to be puffed up and 
pat yourself on the back and think you're doing really well, then look to God and His holiness to which no human being this side of Adam can achieve save Jesus Christ. Look to God's holiness. Look at your own sin in comparison and look to the cross and the price that was paid to redeem you and forgive you and give you eternal life and forgiveness of sins. What does humility really look like? Well, again, Philippians 2 points us to Jesus. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. All right, any divine beings in here this morning? Just quick hand. None? No divine beings here this morning. That's right. Good. I don't have to fail you. <laughs> or embarrass you. We, we're not divine. We, we were not equal with God. And yet Jesus was. And yet he didn't regard it as a thing that equality with God, a thing to be grasped, a thing to, to demand his privileges, but rather a, a, allowed himself to be made into the appearance as a man, to become man. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He even submitted himself to death, mortality. The immortal God took on mortality and made himself obedient to death, even death on a cross, the worst form of death. That's what Jesus did for us. And now, because of the new era, because we are chosen of God, holy and beloved, now God calls us to do exactly that for one another. To put on the apron of a slave and wash each other's feet. To be willing to do the lowest of tasks in service to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because we have a heart of humility ready to serve. Fourth, cultivate a heart of gentleness. Another part of the fruit of the Spirit One of the Greek lexicons defines this word in this way. It is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance, which results in a gentle spirit. You can see from this definition of the word that it overlaps pretty closely with humility. Indeed, most of these words have overlap in them, and one word flows into the other, and and the next one flows into the next one. Can you be gentle without being humble? Can you be kind but not gentle? Can you be compassionate but unkind? So these terms overlap with each other and influence each other. And as we'll see more of this overlap comes as we go along, especially when we get to love. Gentleness and meekness, of course, were hallmarks of the life of Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Gentleness doesn't get a lot of clicks. 
in our society. Gentleness does not get a lot of attention. But the Lord sees it and loves it. And it contributes to church health and biblical community. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, all overlapping and all necessary for healthy church relationships. Next, let's see a heart of patience. Again, a fruit of the Spirit. Patience. It is to remain calm in the face of provocation and agitation. So think of your little brother or sister in the back seat poking your arm on a long trip or just taking his pinky and just touching you, just, just touching the hem of your garment and you can tell, you can tell he's touching. Why is he touching me? And then you explode. And then your mom and dad explode. Well, that is not patience. Patience is having a short, no, a long fuse. It means that when your buttons are pushed, you don't blast off to planet anger. But you bear up under it and you endure mistreatment and you endure annoyances and offenses and insults and you don't respond with anger and frustration. We've got to be patient with one another, don't we? We're all different. Some of us are really different. You know who you are. We have different backgrounds, we have different likes, different dislikes, different preferences, sometimes different convictions, sometimes different beliefs on secondary matters. And if we're not careful, we can so easily become impatient with one another. And those differences become like a grain of sand in our eye and it's all we can focus on and we become so frustrated and impatient with one another. And we either blow up at each other or we cut each other off and say, I'm going to have nothing to do with that person. I don't mind if I never speak to them again. In fact, I may go to a different church so I don't have to ever speak to them again. No, that's not what the gospel does for us. The gospel calls us to something radically different than that. It calls us to patience with one another. It calls us to humility, serving Yes, even those saints that maybe sometimes get under our skin or are difficult or we just don't jive well with. Patience speaks calm into the storm of frustration and helps us remain relationally steady with one another. Sixth, cultivate a heart of tolerance and forgiveness. And again, we see patience and tolerance overlapping even as patience and humility overlap. In verse 13, Paul is switching things up here grammatically in his list. He moves from the imperative verb put on in verse 12. Here in verse 13, he uses two participles that are linked together. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. 
And let me tell you how verse 12 and 13 function together. Verse 13 is showing us the means by which we are to put on the clothes of verse 12. You can't get to verse 12 if you don't first go through verse 13. That's the groundwork. Verse 13 has to be in place in order for the stuff of verse 12 to show up. We put on these new attitudes by first bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Think about it like a step-by-step instruction. Step one, Paul says, take off the old clothes, the dirty clothes, the clothes of the old life of anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Step two, being careful to bear with one another and forgive each other, put on the new clothes of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And so bearing with one another and forgiving each other are the essential attitudes and actions that are prerequisite to putting on the heart God wants us to have. All right, so bearing with one another is to put up with one another. You have to put up with me, I have to put up with you. That doesn't sound very Christian, does it? That does sound like siblings putting up with each other. While it's not the highest expression of Christ-like love, bearing with one another, putting up with one another, it is, however, necessary. Just like in baseball, here you go, Pastor Rob. Just like in baseball, if you want to score a run, you've got to touch all the bases. You can't just skip first base and say, well, that part's not really important. Just like that, if you want to have healthy community, you've got to start with first base. And first base is bearing with one another. If we don't bear with one another, we're not showing up. Right? It's easier to stay home. It's easier to skip it. It's easier to just try another church. Just let, I'll try a different one. We've got to begin with bearing one another. And that means we're going to annoy each other once in a while. That means we're going to make each other upset once in a while. That means we're going to be frustrated with each other once in a while. But we are called to bear with one another. And Christian community's got to start there. We've got to at least do the minimum of showing up and bearing up. But of course, we've got to go beyond just tolerating one another. Bearing with one another is to tolerate each other's quirks and idiosyncrasies. But we've got to go beyond that. If we're ever going to be able to clothe ourselves with new attitudes, we've got to forgive each other. So we not only bear with one another, but we forgive each other. Because sometimes those quirks and idiosyncrasies and funny things that kind of annoy us are going to translate into bigger offenses and we're going to feel hurt and offended and our response now in this new order, in this new self, is forgiveness. Like seedlings, these new attitudes of verse 12 can't flourish unless they are planted in the soil of tolerance, bearing with one another, and receive the sunlight of forgiveness. Forgiveness is such an important issue. It's a big issue. 
Paul was a realist. He knew there would be conflict in the church. He knew there would be hurt feelings. He knew there would be offenses given and offenses received. And he calls here for us to forgive. That if we're the offender, we should readily seek forgiveness of those we've offended. And if we're the offended, we should readily grant forgiveness to those who have offended us. Now, forgiveness is a big issue and it's a little more complicated than that, but not much more. I mean, look, look at the comprehensive language Paul uses there. He says in verse 13, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. We tend to think that the offenses done against us are of a different class and order. Yeah, but see, you don't understand. You don't know what was done against me. Well, Paul doesn't, he doesn't stipulate. He says, forgive anyone who has offense against anyone. Forgive. Means we don't harbor bitterness or seek to get even, get even, but we forgive. Even as the Lord has forgiven us, so should we. Aren't you glad the Lord doesn't forgive us the way we often forgive others? We, we forgive with stingy hearts. We put all kinds of stipulations on it. We say, well, I'll forgive if they do this, 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 and this. Now, on what basis did the Lord forgive us? Faith. We believed his promise and he forgave. Readily, fully, freely. I've put some additional resources about forgiveness on the church app. On the sermon notes page, if you want to check those out, some good books and uh, other messages that tell you more. But our forgiveness of others is to be motivated by and patterned after the Lord Jesus' forgiveness of us. And that is a radical type of forgiveness. Lord, help us to forgive each other. Finally, cultivate a heart of love, verse 7. Or number seven, verse 14. Paul says in verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Beyond all the attitudes he's listed in verses 12 through 13, put on love. Love here is pictured as the, the uber attitude. The attitude that, that excels them all. Love is pictured here as being like an outer garment that covers all of the other inner garments that you've just put on, all those other attitudes. And after you've put all those on, put love on as an outer covering. Like coveralls. You know what coveralls are, right? Covers all of you. Coveralls go over your nice clothes that you don't want to get dirty. The coveralls protect everything else. That's how love is functioning here. Love functions as the Christian's coveralls. You might have seen the show Dirty Jobs, where the host goes and shadows someone who has a dirty job and they work in the sewer or 
you know, they, they pump the, the pit or whatever they're doing. And it necessarily involves them getting very, very dirty. Well, you better put on your coveralls for this job. Church is like that. It's sometimes a dirty job. And it requires us to put on our coveralls of love. Love is at the heart of all these other Christian attitudes, and it is love that fuels each of them. Love fuels compassion. Love fuels patience. Love fuels our forgiveness and our bearing up with one another. Love fuels it all. Christian love is not just a feeling. It's active. Christian love goes to work. It shows itself. It manifests itself. Think about a church body that lived this way. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love doesn't brag and it's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I want to go to that church. And you probably do too. But to go to that church, you've got to be that first. Right? God has modeled this very kind of love perfectly for us so that we can see it in him first and know what it looks like. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love is initiating. Love doesn't say, well, I'll forgive them if they, you know, they've got to come to me first and they've got to, you know, I'll... I'll show compassion maybe to that person if, if they ask for it or whatever. No, love initiates. It walks across the room. It initiates the conversation. It asks the questions that are necessary. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our down, down our lives for the brethren. That's the pattern. That's the example. What are you willing to do for your brothers and sisters in Christ? What are you unwilling to do for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Love says, I'll give it all. I'll gladly spend and be spent for my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I know we all want to be part of a church that loves well, that forgives quickly, that is marked by kindness and patience and humility and compassion. But to be a church like that, I know I have to first be a Christian who's like that. That I have to cultivate these attitudes in my own heart, and so must you. How can we do that? By going back to the gospel itself. As those who are chosen of God, holy and love, put on these things. It's as we reflect upon the truth of the gospel and rest in its grace and draw upon its power and resources that we grow in grace and in these attitudes of the new self, the new order, 
the new life. When Paul says, keep seeking the things that are above, these are the very things he's talking about. These are the things that characterize Jesus Christ. Seek him, and along with him, these qualities, these attitudes. And as we grow more and more into Christ's likeness, we will grow more and more into a church that is healthy and a community that is real. May the Lord make it so.